Hello, my name is Spencer Wright, and I'm excited to announce the launch of my brand new podcast, Waltz Oasis. Welcome to episode one. This podcast will discuss animals and the people who helped create them from the world of Disney. Topics will come from the from animated and live action film, shorts, theme parks, documentaries, and much more. Informed by the values established by Walt Disney, I will discuss subjects ranging from animals you can see in Animal Kingdom, authors whose stories inspired films, characters beloved and obscure, and more. I hope to have weekly episodes which cover one or two topics, but may shift to bi-weekly episodes on occasion. As Walt's Oasis grows, I plan on inviting guests who can discuss their work with Disney and with the various animals I will cover. As some quick background information, my name is Spencer Wright and I live in Delaware County right outside of Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. I am a Walt Disney World annual pass holder and enjoy visiting often, especially Animal Kingdom. Some of my favorite places at Walt Disney World include Animal Kingdom Lodge, Gorilla Falls Exploration Trail, Epcot's Future World, now World Discovery, and Typhoon Lagoon. I am the author of The Enchanted Disney, Stories of Walt, Hollywood, and Live Action Film, published this year through Bear Manor Media, which the Midwest Book Review has described as, quote, a simply fascinating and extraordinarily informative combination of biographic and cinematic history. You can find the book on bearmanormedia.com and amazon.com. Please follow the podcast on Instagram, on my personal page at Spencer Wright, 19070 and the show page at Walt Oasis, where I will post pictures of subjects discussed. And feel free to email me at waltoasis at gmail.com with any feedback, questions, or episode suggestions. Episode suggestions are always welcome. So I will now get started with the show's very first topic, the African Painted Dog. The African painted dog is a species of wild canine native to sub-Saharan Africa. It has beautiful patched coats mixed with blacks, browns, white, and tans. Their muzzles are generally black, and they have a bushy tail which is typically white-tipped. Each dog has a unique pattern similar to fingerprints, and each dog is strikingly different. They are also known for their round ears, which you know somewhat resemble Mickey Mouse. They weigh in at about 40 to 79 pounds, with males slightly larger than females. African painted dogs are included as part of Animal Kingdom's Kilimanjaro Safaris, one of the park's most popular attractions, and they are seen on the left side of the safari vehicle shortly after one enters the savanna section of the attraction. They are in their own enclosure shared with no other animals. I recommend really focusing in and on and viewing and appreciating them as the opportunity is relatively brief. Many guests, this includes myself, often tend to focus on zebra and giraffe that live on the savanna, especially baby zebra and giraffe, but those animals are easily visible throughout the rest of the savanna as well as at Animal Kingdom Lodge versus the African painted dog which lives strictly on the savanna. They live in packs typically of seven to 20 members but packs can number up to 40. The pack is highly cooperative with an alpha pair, but the social hierarchy is relatively loose. All dogs in the pack will help with the care of pups, 
Those are the baby African painted dogs, as well as the care of sick and wounded members. They have a large range of vocalizations, including elaborate greeting rituals, in which each member will greet each other with a specific greeting. African painted dogs make a wide variety of chattering, squeaking, and cackling noises, but do not howl in a manner similar to wolves. And members of the pack often show great courtesy to each other. A May 1999 article in National Geographic recounted seeing a pack sleeping together, and one of the dogs walked away from the pack to scratch itself with its hind leg, as animals do, and then it returned to the pack and went back to sleep, ensuring that it did not disturb anyone else. Both males and females share responsibility for caring of the pups, and pups, again, these are the baby African painted dogs, will live in a den, often an abandoned warthog burrow, until they can hunt on their own and as part of the pack. So on the Kilimanjaro Safari, you also see warthogs in the burrows they live in, you know, something to think about is once those are abandoned, African painted dogs will often move in. So members of the hunting group will gorge themselves on meat, and then they will regurgitate the meat for the pups when they go back to their den. Again, all members of the group help care for the pups, and that includes guarding the den, babysitting, and providing food. Generally, the life expectancy is about 10 to 12 years. Now, what African painted dogs are probably most well-known for are being fierce and efficient hunters. They hunt as a pack, and their coloration makes the pack look larger than they in fact are, which confuses prey as they see this terrifying amorphous mass. Their diet includes gazelle, antelope, wildebeest, the calves of various animals, rats, and birds. Now, they may hunt warthog, However, warthogs with their tusks and their thick, tough skin, you know, it makes hunting them a risky proposition. And they are probably Africa's most efficient hunters. According to the San Diego Zoo, African painted dogs catch targeted prey about 70 to 90% of the time. And this is in contrast to lions, which are only successful about 30 to 40% of the time. Packs can run up to 41 miles per hour for three hours, exhausting prey if they are not initially successful. So think about that, 41 miles per hour for three hours. That means running at that maximum speed, they can run four and three quarters marathons in three hours, but they can run at a relatively slower pace, say 25 miles per hour for four, five, six hours. And then when they do catch their prey, they eat fast in order to avoid having their kill stolen by scavengers. So that includes hyenas and vultures, which may follow the dogs when they are on the hunt. A pack can easily consume an entire gazelle in less than 10 minutes, which they do to avoid losing their catch, typically to lions, who are the only natural predator of the African painted dog. The African painted dog, it is one of the most endangered species in Africa, and they were once spread throughout sub-Saharan Africa, but now they really only exist in small pockets in countries like Botswana, Zimbabwe, Zambia, Kenya, Tanzania, and Chad. Their population in the wild numbers about six to 7,000, and in past years they've had estimates that are quite a bit lower. According to the African Wildlife Conservation Fund, there are only about 650 packs left in the world. Again, they're one of the most endangered species in Africa due to habitat loss, human hunting, 
and diseases like rabies and distemper, which they'll acquire from domestic dogs, and they are especially vulnerable to rabies and distemper. Also, they do need a large habitat to thrive, and fragmentation in their habitat can make it difficult for them to migrate and to follow their prey. And so they will often rely on livestock, resulting in humans killing them who need that livestock as their income, and they need it to survive. Um, also being hit by vehicles and caught in snares can lead to their death. In particular, poachers will set wire snares to catch antelope and other small animals for the bushmeat trade, you know, resulting in the dog dying in the snare. They are also feared in part due to the way packs hunt, as well as the fact that when they catch prey, they will tend to catch up to the prey and begin to rip it apart versus a lion, which will tend to grab and pounce on prey by the neck if they can and carry it off. There are aggressive conservation efforts to help save the African painted dog, in particular by the Disney Conservation Fund, which any visitor to Animal Kingdom will hear about quite often. So the Disney Conservation Fund, or DCF, was founded in 1995 and according to their website is, quote, committed to saving wildlife and building a global community, inspired to protect the magic of nature together. Since 1995, they've directed more than $120 million to various conservation efforts, as well as providing expertise in supporting organizations around the world. And efforts are focused on conserving specific animal species, addressing systemic problems, as well as protecting a wide variety of ecosystems. Now, the African painted dogs joined the savannah in 2015 at Animal Kingdom. However, well before then, the Disney Conservation Fund, the DCF, had provided you know, funding for their conservation, amounting to about half a million dollars. And these conservation efforts continue. So one example, in 2002, the DCF partnered with the African Wildlife Foundation. Now, by this point, the African Wildlife Foundation was reporting there were only about 3,000 to 5,000 African painted dogs left in the wild, meaning that the elephant population on the continent numbered them by about 100 to 1. So, in, you know, specifically, the DCF supported a study of a population of the dogs in southern Kenya and northern Tanzania in eastern Africa with the goal of understanding the population, how it moves, its actual numbers, um, and how it can better exist with local pastoral Maasai communities. You know, this is a particularly difficult species to conserve. Um, conservationists often struggle to come up with an alternative to killing the dogs. You know, they have to present an alternative to people who otherwise kill them because they do go after livestock, which people rely on as their income, you know, as well as food to survive. Therefore, the goal of the research in 2002, as well as ongoing research, is to understand why did the dogs go after livestock, you know, the economic losses, and also what is the public perception of these animals. Without understanding this, a solution cannot be created. In 2019, the DCF funded a project called Empowering Communities to Conserve Large Carnivores, which was done through the nonprofit Americans for Oxford. The goal is to protect populations of large carnivores like the lion, African painted dog, cheetah, leopard, and spotted hyena in Tanzania, the eastern African country. Specifically, the goal is to reduce livestock depredation by these animals, improve the livelihoods of people in the region who may poach them, and incentivize the conservation of these large carnivores. In other words, you know, you provide an alternative to poaching, you know, that people rely on for income. 
to help preserve the species. Another example, um, they've worked with Painted Dog Conservation, which is part of the Wildlife Conservation Network, which is based in Zimbabwe. Zimbabwe, this Southern African country, really is one of the last strongholds these animals have. So Painted Dog Conservation, they received a two-year grant from 2018 to 2020 to establish a permanent field base in the Mid-Zambezi Valley in Zimbabwe. The goal of the research was to create a base where, you know, the population could be studied and local people could be educated about these animals, as well as to get a better understanding of why poaching may be on the increase. So painted dog conservation, they work closely with local people to provide income from other sources, as well as to develop an appreciation of these animals, again, who are sometimes feared and understandably. Um, you know, further support for the African Wildlife Conservation Fund, again, in Zimbabwe, you know, supports meticulous monitoring of populations, how they move, how they interact with lions and hyenas, as well as organizing rabies vaccination campaigns in local domestic dog populations. Again, the African painted dog is quite susceptible to rabies and also removing wild snares. Now, to learn more about these animals, there are two places on Disney Plus, the Walt Disney Company streaming service, where you can learn more about them. The first is National Geographic's, National Geographic's Growing Up Animal series, which is a really fantastic series talking about the birth and development of various animals. Episode four features a baby wild dog's story. And then Magic of Disney's Animal Kingdom, season two, episode six, Flocks of Love also includes the dogs. So if you watch both of these episodes, again, Growing Up Animal and Magic of Disney's Animal Kingdom, you can see how these animals exist both in the wild and in captivity. The Growing Up Animal episode in particular shows the development of the canine from the womb as pups are raised and their transition to living as contributing members of the pack. So again, I would recommend those viewing options as well as really taking the time to enjoy the animals the next time you are on Kilimanjaro safaris. Sources for this section included Disney Parks blog, PaintedDog.org, San Diego Wildlife Alliance.org, and National Geographic magazine. I will now begin the second segment, which is on Bill Peet. So this is really just an introduction to Bill Peet, who was a story artist at the Walt Disney Studio. He worked at the studio um, from the 30s into the 60s and was really an integral, an integral asset to the animated features and shorts of Walt Disney's era, working as a story artist. And Bill Peet, he will come up a lot when I discuss a variety of features, characters, and shorts, in particular Dumbo and Song of the South. So as a story artist, he was responsible for sketching out stories and providing the initial design of characters. He was born Bill Peed and changed his last name to Pete. He was born in Indiana on January 29th, 1915. He said, quote, animal personalities have always intrigued me and the desire to find out more about them made a reader out of me. As a child, he would go to the library often walking four miles through winter weather if he had to, often reading books written by big game hunters and developing a fascination with African wildlife. His childhood did have substantial domestic difficulties, but he did look back fondly on playing in the creek and watching trains go by. He received some training as an artist, 
and the director of an art school he attended handed him a brochure for the Walt Disney Studios, who was looking for artists. Now, many, you know, in the art community at the time looked down a little bit at animation or being a cartoonist, or it just wasn't what they wanted to do. However, this was 1937. And he said 1937 was a poor year to start a career as a painter, or a career of any kind for that matter. The prevailing mood of that year was gloom and despair. And therefore, like Pete and many others who joined the studio, you know, during the Great Depression, he was happy for any job of any kind. It was a job and it paid money. And that was better than most people could say. So we saw the brochure and he sent samples of his work to the studio and received a letter instructing him to report to the studio as a trainee on September 9th, 1937. He initially worked as an in-betweener on Donald Duck shorts. An in-betweener is someone who creates intermediate frames between scenes of animation, allowing for smooth movement. It is tedious work, but is a common starting position for animators. One day, Pete could not take it anymore and stormed out of the building, shouting, no more ducks, no more lousy ducks. He figured his career at Disney was over, but he had to return a jacket as he could not afford another one. He returned to his desk and he found a pink slip transferring him to the story department. So storyboard artists, which is what Pete was, are responsible for using illustrations and images to show how a potential story unfolds and how characters develop. So this includes various elements of both character design and plot development. And Pete is generally regarded as Walt Disney's greatest story man, really on par with Walt himself. Walt Disney always went by his first name, Walt, as did everyone at the studio, in terms of telling stories and, more importantly, incorporating vibrant characters into a story that the audience will care about. Um, and he really had a profound influence on many of the greatest features that we think of today. Um, in their book by Frank Thomas and Ollie Johnston, Disney Animation, The Illusion of Life, the legendary animator said, Storymen are diverse in their talents and interests as animators. They are not interchangeable and cannot be expected to do equally well on every assignment. When Walt wanted a certain result, he cast his storymen with the same perception and intuition he had displayed in casting his animators. And so Frank Thomas and Ollie Johnston wrote that, you know, Pete, he really shared Walt's love for farmlands and he was always able to create characters and stories that were real and down to earth, you know, even if the story itself was quite fantastic. And he had great skills of observation. So he was able to bring the same character to something, whether it was a boxcar on a freight train or what they refer to as a Bavarian dwarf living under a lily pad. And so Pete always had a strong idea of an overall story while also leaving in room for gags and changes that may be needed. The storyboards he created were full of character and they really provided a strong template for animators to work off of. And animators always appreciated this work. Um, Ward Kimball, in particular, said you could always get the look and feel of a character off of Bill Pete's storyboards. And Eric Larson always felt that they were exciting. And he had this very simple way of drawing. Um, so you had this sense of staging and something to work off of. And again, he always left in room for humor, imagination, songs, and now Pete, you know, Bill Pete and Walt were very similar and they would clash often. 
you know, Pete did not hesitate to push back quite aggressively on Walt's feedback. And, you know, in particular, Walt might even suggest some very, very minor changes. And Walt did not, Pete did not hesitate to push back. And that was something that very few people did. Normally, if Walt, you know, did something like raise his eyebrow and say, let's try something different, then they would versus Pete, who would say no and defend his work. So now I'll get specific with a few of the films and characters that Bill Pete helped to craft. So first I will discuss The Mice and Lucifer from 1950s Cinderella. So Lucifer is the cat. Um, and Pete believed that 1950s Cinderella was one of the best stories the studio ever produced. You know, he believed that the story itself of Cinderella was one that audiences are familiar with. And that really, you could tell the story in seven minutes on screen. You could tell it in a short or in a few pages in a storybook. Um, you know, and again, you know the story, you know the results, but he was assigned the cat and the mouse by Walt with the idea of adding some additional plot and character into the movie. Pete said, I couldn't have been happier, even though inventing new mice and a new cat wouldn't be easy since there have been so many varieties of them in comic strips and animated films. He further said, I was given the cat and mouse stuff, a lot of that. I got the juicy parts, the fairy godmother and the cat and the mice. That's the meat of the picture. Meeting the prince at the ball. Thank God I didn't get that one. Without comedy, the film would have been dead as Sleeping Beauty. And really the challenge is in creating the mice and the cat, again, the cat's name is Lucifer, is that you have to interweave them with the events of the story. You know, the conflict between the cat and the mouse without detracting from the main plot. And as Bill Pete, you know, put it, threading the comedy throughout the film. Um, and so one of the things he did was ensure that each mouse have their own unique, strong personalities. In his autobiography, he described Jacques, a scrawny little mouse, and Gus, a plump, slow-witted one, played major roles in the picture. You know, and they were heroes in outsmarting the villainous cat, Lucifer. And he also made sure that the animals were crucial to Cinderella's ultimate happy ending. So regarding the picture, he said, and when the picture made it big at the box office, it was indeed Walt's Cinderella story making it possible for him to keep his dreams alive, which included Disneyland, unquote. So even in later decades, he always remarked that the existence of things like Walt Disney World and Epcot were owed to the existence of 1950s Cinderella. So he also worked on 1959 Sleeping Beauty. And while he loved Cinderella, he said, quote, but a lot of times he'd work on things that weren't good to draw, like Sleeping Beauty. He believed that Sleeping Beauty was an austere and inferior version of 1937 Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, largely because it lacked small sympathetic creatures like those you saw in Dumbo and Cinderella. But he did have a great time designing the goons. So these are Maleficent's dim-witted minions, and they were partially inspired by the work of Dutch painter Hieronymus Bosch, who was alive from 1450 to 1516. And they show depictions of the underworld and demons. So a lot of times when you see documentaries and similar which show scenes of the underworld, they're showing pictures by Hieronymus Bosch. And Pete had a great time designing the creatures. He said, The most fun I had with Sleeping Beauty was inventing a band of monstrous little demons to serve as henchmen for the awesome witch Maleficent. And the goons have parts of pigs, gators, reptiles, birds, 
You know, they're designed to have beaks, horns, snouts, and fangs. And the designs then were altered to be a little more comical, so they would not be too scary for children. He was also integral to the animated short Goliath 2. So again, Pete and Walt clashed often. And in particular, they had an argument over the scene in Sleeping Beauty where Aurora meets Prince Philip and small animals help their dance in the woods. So Walt accused Pete of having a mental block and he was relegated to working on TV commercials, which was seen as a step down from full-length animated films. So after two months of doing the work that he hated, Pete decided just to return to his room. It was 3B8 and he just returned and got back to work on stories. And he had begun working on children's books on the side. And so he used one of the stories for these children books to create Goliath 2. And so Walt thought that the story was cute. And so he let, you know, Pete work on the short. So this was an animated short released on January 21st, 1960 and directed by Wooly Reitherman. So in it, it's a cartoon with an elephant that has only grown to be five inches tall to the shame of his father, Goliath. So Goliath, too, has to fend off a tiger, and he eventually wins the respect of his herd after bravely taking on a mouse. Pete wrote and storyboarded the project, which was narrated by Sterling Holloway. And this is really beautifully animated with very lush, vivid sets and strong characters. It did reuse animation from 1953's Peter Pan for the Crocodile, and then later footage from the short was used for some of the elephant scenes in 1967's The Jungle Book. Now, the real project that was Pete's and strictly Bill Pete's was 1961's 101 Dalmatians. So author Dodie Smith wrote the book, The 101 101 Dalmatians, which was one day sent to Pete's office with no other explanation. So Pete read the book and he saw that with an army of Dalmatians as well as other animals, this was a perfect story for the studio to create. So he received a call from Walt and and Walt said, hey, Bill, why don't you read the book and let me know what you think? It might make a good animated feature. Mark Davis, who animated Corella DeVille, remembered, one of my personal favorites is a man named Bill Pete. He put together 101 Dalmatians. It was such an interesting film. It is a film that doesn't have a bad scene in it or a scene that doesn't belong in it. And then layout artist Victor Victor Habush remembered, Bill Pete was one of these brilliant, brilliant artists. He could cartoon you as any animal, a bear, a cockatoo, and it would be you. Habush further stated he did the entire storyboard and wrote all the dialogue and recorded the dialogue and shot the storyboards. He directed it. It had nothing to do with Waltz, unquote. So Pete did, in fact, you know, adapt the book, write the screenplay, cast the voices. He did editing and he worked with animators. So audiences were, you know, and critics were enthusiastic at the time of the film's release. And it has really remained a Disney favorite. Author Dodie Smith, in particular, heaped praise on the film, writing to Walt many complimentary letters. One that said, you know, in particular, I am more and more struck by the freshness of the film's new funny material, which to me is exactly right. Although I would argue that these letters probably should have been addressed to Bill Pete instead. So Bill Pete's final project with Disney was early development on The Jungle Book. So according to Pete, he encouraged Walt to purchase the rights to The Jungle Book by Rudyard Kipling, which Walt did in 1963. 
you know, and what really attracted Pete to the book was the wealth of interesting characters, such as Baloo, the big playful buffoon of a bear, Ka, the sneaky sly python, and Hati, the bull elephant who didn't trust the man cub or any of his kind. So Pete had about six or seven storyboards worked out, and it includes songs, one of which was The Bear Necessities, written by Terry Gilkison. And so, you know, Pete's boards crafted a film which had a darker tone consistent with the book. But Walt did not like the direction of the film, and he turned the script over to others. Essentially, everything that Pete and Gilkison did, besides The Bear Necessities, he wanted thrown out. And, you know, future artists who worked on the film, including the Sherman brothers, the songwriters, he instructed them not to read the book. But Walt told, you know, future writers, layout artists, animators, was that the Jungle Book, as he's going to make it, is a story of a boy in the jungle who has fun adventures and he meets interesting characters. Full stop. And Walt will focus on crafting the actual story. So as Walt was sort of throwing out all this work that Pete and Gilkison had done, the pair had an especially bad fight, and Pete left the studio after 27 years, leaving in 1964. On the side, Pete had written children's books, and by this point had five children books in print. And after he left the studio, he pursued this profession full-time, becoming extremely successful. Bill Pete was inducted as a Disney legend in 1996 in the category of animation and passed away on May 11, 2002. Sources for this segment include the Waltz People series, edited by DDA Gez, BillPete.net, Bill Pete, an autobiography by Bill Pete, Disney Animation, The Illusion of Life by Frank Thomas and Ollie Johnston, and various other books and articles. Well, I hope you enjoyed the very first episode of Walt's Oasis. I will be back next week with a brand new episode. Again, please follow the podcast on Instagram on my personal page at SpencerWright19070 and the show page at Walt Oasis or I will post pictures of subjects discussed. And feel free to email me at waltoasis at gmail.com with any feedback, questions, or episode suggestions. Episode suggestions are always welcome. Until next time, thank you for listening.